Hello, traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst with Refinitiv, go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Refinitiv's head of America's oil analyst. We're going to take you through what's happening in energy in the Western Hemisphere. An important note, the opinions given by Jim, me, or any of our guests are our own and not those of Refinitiv or our parent company, the London Stock Exchange Group, also known as LSEG. With that, in light of recent events in Texas that Jim and I were right in the middle of, we're talking about the energy mix and its potential implications. Jim, kick, kick us off. Before we start... I want to mention the confirmation of the new Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm. She's a graduate of Cal Berkeley and Harvard Law and a two-term governor of Michigan. Her focus has been the intersection of law and clean energy. It's pretty similar to Brenda Mallory, the chair of the President's Council on Environmental Quality, who is from Columbia University and Yale Law. The third person in the governmental energy management structure is the Department of Interior. Deborah Holland was recently confirmed. She has an undergraduate and a law degree in Native American law from the University of New Mexico. The fourth influencer in the structure is Michael Regan, designee for the EPA and a practitioner of grassroots energy practice in North Carolina. The picture for the next four years in energy is becoming clearer with three energy lawyers in key positions and one energy practitioner. If I could lend a thought to these four government energy leaders, energy policy needs to be the will of the people and not the will of a political party. Moving on. Canada's had some legendary rock bands. From the rock riffs of Bachman Turner Overdrive to the pop anthems of Loverboy in the 1980s. And who hasn't vented some emotion by screaming a Nickelback song? And if you can watch the documentary about tragically hip frontman Gord Downey without emotions, you may not have any. But there are two bands and two songs that sum up Canada's energy mix and transportation mix. The greatest of the bands and certainly most unique rock and roll voice is Rush and Getty Lee. Their song Closer to the Heart could be the anthem for the Canadian energy market. The energy markets and All of its functions are by far the biggest industry in Canada. 2021 revenue expected to be about $449 billion. The next closest industry is a a little over half this size, and it's commercial banking. Those revenues are expected around $240 billion. Energy is definitely closer to the heart for most Canadians, Alberta, and the people in Ottawa who like to spend tax revenue. So let's look at power gen by source. 60% is hydro, but that's not evenly distributed. Manitoba, Newfoundland and Labrador, and Quebec have over 95% of their power gen in hydro. British Columbia and Yukon are a touch under 90%. BC will be well over 90% if they can get that albatross that is the Site C dam finished. For what it's worth, there are over 15,000 dams in Canada, but only about 115 are hydro dams. Two risks here. One is the massive over budget of these projects. The Site C dam is now expected to come in around $16.8 billion. 
had they built a gas plant, that cost would be $600 million. One can do a lot of carbon sequester for $16.2 billion. The second risk is just now being discovered. It's the massive amount of methane release from decades of soil decay under the reservoir. The next most quantity of power gen in Canada is nuclear at 15%. Canada is the second largest producer of uranium on the planet. New Brunswick has one plant. Ontario has four huge plants and two simply very large plants. I will note here that Ontario has cheaper power rates than I pay in Texas. Other than the obvious opportunity cost of not using Canadian resources, the risk here could fill many podcasts. So I'll move on. Natural gas makes up a bit under 10% of Canadian power gen. The risk here is really an opportunity cost of not using nat gas for power gen. The benefit is its availability for heavy oil production and a potential massive source of green hydrogen. In proven natty reserves, Canada's 18th on the list. Include the gas in tight formations. Canada moves to third in the world with over 30 trillion cubic meters. For reference, the U.S. nat gas reserves are around 13 trillion cubic meters. Next up is coal at 7% with usage in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Nova Scotia. Detailing these risks is highly political. So I'll just mention that Justin Bieber is Canadian and just move on. Next up is wind at 5% with almost all of it on Prince Edward Island. The remaining 3% is split between biomass and petroleum. Yeah, petroleum. If anyone wants to complain, I suggest they head up to Nunavut and voice their opinion. But you better bring hand warmers. The furthest area north in Nunavut is more than 2,300 miles north of the coldest spot in the continental U.S. Another notable and stunningly skilled Canadian band is called July Talk. Their song Push and Pull is about the interaction of two 20-somethings. It's a haunting song. And the mingling of vocal interaction between the male and female singers is something I don't think's ever existed before. But that's not my point. In spite of their unique artistry, will July Talk ever have the commercial appeal of Rush or the longevity of Tragically Hip? This is where we are on the transportation side. Canada has roughly 36.3 million vehicles and about 170,000 electric vehicles. About 45% of the electric vehicles are in Quebec, 27% in Ontario, and 24% in British Columbia. So will electric vehicles ever catch on in Canada? Or at least get the 2% of the vehicles? Well, that's a great question. Uh, You missed a few bands, though. Finger 11, Three Days Grace, Theory of Dead Men. I'm not sure if I should be proud or worried that my 8-year-old twins know the lyrics to some of the songs from those groups. Anyway, uh, tell us about symbols. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have that same issue with my 12-year-old. So I knew him as Jamie Starr and sometimes Joey Coco. When he became world famous, he would sometimes sneak into the Fine Line Bar and play under the name of his first producer, Christopher. A tip of the hat to Chris Moon. 
he became one of those world influencers known only by one name. He was a petite guy with a huge vocal range, falsetto to baritone, and a virtuoso command of the guitar and drums. I heard he could play a lot of instruments. I saw him play seven, all in the same set. It was a phenomenal experience coming of age during his rise. Prince was arguably the most talented all-around performer the industry's ever seen. I marveled at the wide range of influence he had. It's the nature of this rise in influence that bears a striking similarity to the energy and transportation mix in the U.S. So give me a minute while I put on my purple jacket. Of course, it's podcast day, so I already have a frilly shirt on. Put my purple vinyl album on the turntable. And here we go. The current energy consumption mix, power gen, transportation, music making, everything consumed, for the U.S. looks like this, as stated by the EIA. 37% of all energy consumed comes from petroleum, 32% from nat gas, 11% from coal, 11.5% from renewables, and 8.5% from nuclear. Let's look further into the end-user stack of each of these consumption numbers in order to determine possible risks. Starting with petroleum, 70% went into transportation, cars, trucks, trains, ships, airplanes. 24% went into industry, mostly as heat and feedstock. This is where the rise of prints and petroleum have similarities. J.D. Rockefeller understood the demand potential of an energy-dense fuel. That's potential work over weight and volume. He bet everything he had and became the richest man in the history of the world. Prince took the dense demand from funk, R&B, and rock, and like J.D. Rockefeller, created something new. So the other 6%, well, 3% went to residential, 2% went to commercial. In both instances, this is rural heating demand mostly home heating oil and or propane. The last 1% went to power gen. This is fuel oil used for emergency use as this form of power gen is expensive and inefficient. Turning to nat gas, 36% of the nat gas consumed went to power gen, 33% to industry, so that's distributed generation, heat and as a feedstock, 16% to residential, 11% to commercial, and only 3% to transportation. There is no purple rain falling on this message. Nat gas and petroleum account for 73% of the energy consumed in the U.S. It literally sustains our prosperity. Along that same line, Prince lent his music and his wealth to sustain the existence of the Joffrey Ballet in Chicago. Not a huge ballet fan, but I've watched the ballet billboards multiple times. For coal, 90% went to power gen, 10% to industry. The message here is also clear. The world is short power. Getting rid of coal too quickly leaves a bad short position even worse. This, of course, needs to be balanced against the exhaust of burning coal. That, my friends, is far too big a discussion for the time we have today. Moving on to renewables, 24% is wind, 22% is hydro, 9% is solar, 2% geothermal, 
and 43% of the renewables in the U.S. is from biomass. This sounds great until one looks a little deeper. About half of this quantity is literally cutting down trees and burning them for electricity. How in the world do the new green dealers or anyone allow this to happen? If this section of the pie is going to expand, the energy industry has to have open dialogue about economics, because sub subsidies can only carry it so far, reliability, resiliency, and stop shooting ourselves in the kneecaps. Equally shocking, and something only a local would know about Prince, he was a masterful ping pong player. He would invite celebrities visiting his Glam Slam nightclub into the back room and then absolutely dismantle them in a ping pong match. My invitation probably got stopped when I ordered a cheap beer instead of a foo-foo drink. Oh, well. Nuclear power. 100% is going to the electric power system. Interestingly enough, this is the only power generation source where we fully manage the exhaust products. Mostly because we have to. There have been 24 applications submitted for new permits in the last 14 years, and two new plants are coming online in 2021. As for the events that happened in Texas the end of February, the facts are still coming out. The two culprits are prolonged cold and poor planning from ERCOT and power generators. That snowballed into a cascading failure that will be its own podcast. For now, I want to mention two points. It's unfair to blame wind generation. It's also unfair to not consider that before the vortex hit, 7,703 megawatts of wind generation was ready and in service. At one point, only 700 megawatts were operating. Worse than that was where it was. Producers and pipeline operators are trying to become more green. They depended in large part on wind generation with zero wind generation in the Texas Panhandle and West Texas, there was no way to power compressors to pull gas out of the ground or power the compressors on the pipeline to move the gas. Second point, when people talk about the ERCOT grid being within minutes of completely collapsing, here's why. The U.S. electric system works on 60 hertz and a range of 110 to 120 volts. That means 60 times a second, the voltage changes between positive and negative charge. Think of voltage as the water pressure in a hose. There's an inverse relationship between frequency and pressure. Lower frequency means higher pressure. Every piece of electrical equipment is tuned to accept power at this frequency and pressure. Changes as little as 0.5 hertz for a couple of minutes caused the magnetic structure of the motor to overload. The Texas grid was at 59.3 hertz for over 10 minutes. A few more minutes at that frequency, and all of the power generators that were online at that time would have overloaded and blown out, as would every refrigerator, TV, and turntable that had power at that time. ERCOT turning off people's power protected the grid and their electric toothbrush. Nonetheless, I'm still thinking about getting a generator. So if you're listening from the U.S. Gulf Coast, get on the list because it is long. Anyway, 
<laughs> Jim, Mexico. Yeah, no doubt about that. Unlike Carlos Santana and his biggest hit, the Mexican energy mix has been anything but smooth. The industry has been dominated by oil for the entirety of its existence. However, that's changing and changing dramatically. As the economy has grown in the last 10 years or so, the growth in energy supply is coming from the growth in principally nat gas, which is even overcoming the declines in oil and coal usage. There has been some growth in solar, wind, and biofuels, but they pale in comparison. So here are the numbers. Oil supplies 45% of the energy supplied. Natty, that's nat gas, 38%. Coal at 6.5%. Biofuels at 5 Wind and solar at 3%. Nuclear at 1.5%. And hydro at 1%. Here are the growth decline numbers. In the last 10 years, oil usage has declined 7.6%. Coal down an even 1%. And hydro down about a half a percent. Natty has increased 7.5% with increases in bio, solar fuel, a bit over half percent, and nuclear about flat. Mexico has a substantial safety net with oil and coal units being ready but idled. However, if the Belt and Road Initiative is to kick in and boost the Mexican economy, they will need to substantially increase their net gas production as the heavy reliance on the U.S. may prove troublesome. The first signs of that were evident in the last week of February, as contracted gas did not even make it out of Texas. There are about 52 million cars in Mexico. It's difficult to ascertain the number of electric vehicles because they're not popular at all. What looks surprising on the surface is that hybrid and plug-in hybrid vehicles are growing at hundreds of percentages every year. Are the Mexican citizens more environmentally minded than even the Europeans? Well, maybe. But what is also clear? Mexican citizens are really tired of waiting in line all day to get gasoline for their vehicles. Tax incentives and governmental subsidies are also helping move this this country towards hybrids. The big concern here, the Mexican power grid is already very short. It's possible that the first test of the power industry due to the electrification of the transportation industry could come in Mexico. So, Corey, where are we off to today? Well, I think the obvious place to start here is Brazil. And with that, let me set the table. I didn't know Jim was going to be so musical today. Otherwise, I'd have related my section to the vast musical talent of Latin America. But maybe next time. The United States has a population of about 330 million people. Last year, we'll have skewed numbers since vehicle miles traveled, or commonly referred to as VMTs, declined by 13% year over year. But in 2019, energy demand equated to just over 100 quadrillion BTUs. In that more normal year, the energy mix was 37% petroleum, 32% natural gas, 11% coal, 11% various renewables, 8% nuclear. Jim took you through that. So, you know, 69% of the primary energy consumption in the U.S. is oil and gas. Brazil is 64% the size of the United States, 
with a population of 211 million people. But the energy consumption there is considerably less, at about 13 quadrillion BTUs. I've spent a great deal of these podcasts talking about Brazilian crude oil production, but the energy mix is quite a bit different in the U.S. Petroleum at 46%, natural gas at 11%, so a combined 57% from oil and gas. Renewables at 8, coal 6, nuclear at 1, and a massive 28% from electric power, hydroelectric power, excuse me. Thus, according to the IEA, quote, Brazil's energy sector is one of the least carbon intensive in the world. Okay, I'm a strong believer in optionality and mixing things up, a not-every-egg-in-one-basket type of person. So Brazil's mix is interesting to me, but let's break it down further. But first, one more comparison. So the U.S. per capita BTUs, 305 million. Brazil, 65 million BTUs per capita. I'm not giving any of them up, and neither are you, so don't ask. Anyway, moving on. On its face, hydropower looks to be superior to other power generation sources. I mean, 90% of the feedstock is turned into electricity generation compared to the oft-quoted figure of a 50% loss of energy content with gas-fired power plants. And the feedstock is generally, I'll come back to this, there, versus being subject to world supply, demand, price issues. But go back to episode two of this season to listen to Jim's talk about the Muskrat Falls Hydro Dam in Canada, and even earlier in this episode, and consider some of the other potential negatives. Changes in water quality, low flow reaches, people relocation, outflow temperature, induced seismicity, and an issue that Jim brought up in episode two, GHG emissions. A lot of this information, the good and the bad, can be found in an article from ScienceDirect and other sources. And Contact me and I'll share the ScienceDirect article link with you. For Brazil specifically, dam issues in the country have largely been associated with the collapse of tailings dams in the mining industry. But hydropower has not been without incident. In 2009, the Itapu Dam, once called one of the seven modern wonders of the world, was affected when a storm damaged three high-voltage transmission lines. This led to power outages in Paraguay and Brazil, completely cutting off power to the high-population areas of Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo. But hey, the implications of such a large reliance on hydropower to meet energy demands, mostly local. The construction and continuous operation of such assets can create issues with nature and with, at least during construction, relocation of populations affected by said construction. And again, hydropower is not without GHG emissions. But since they are difficult to quantify, GHG emissions related to hydropower don't often come up in conversation. Brazil has had a good track record of maintaining its hydropower assets, and even the Itapu Dam problem in 2009 that I mentioned didn't actually damage the dam itself. Like anything else, damage and lack of maintenance will affect hydropower's ability to provide reliable energy, and time will tell whether the current happenings at Electrobras will have any bearing on whether the type of energy is or is not more reliable for Brazil. When I was researching for this podcast, the Brazilian government had announced cutting its stake in Eletrobras from 61% to 45% in a privatization process. But that would actually exclude Itapu. But of course, not only are hydropower issues a more local concern, the ability to generate electricity from water is dependent on geography. I can have nearly 1,300 hydroelectric plants in Brazil, but not, for example, in the middle of Kansas. Yeah, fair point. What about transportation fuels? 
So I definitely want to get into that. But I said, I'll come back to availability in regard to hydropower. So let's hit that first. Like Brazil and other South American countries, Colombia is largely dependent on hydroelectric power to the tune of 30% of primary energy demand. But perhaps more appropriately, power generation is 70% attributable to hydropower. But there, I mean, there have arguably been more, more issues than we've seen in Brazil. Aside from pipeline bombings and heavy rains in Colombia, often proved to be an obstacle to the energy industry in the country, period. <laughs> and I don't want to dig too deeply here, but look into all the issues surrounding Colombia's largest hydroelectric project, Hidro Tawango. But back to transportation fuels. We have varied listeners here, and many are aware of the biofuels industry in Brazil. But for those that aren't, let me catch them up a bit. Behind the United States, Brazil is the second largest producer of ethanol in the world. Collectively, the two countries produce 85% of the world's ethanol. The difference being ethanol produced in Brazil comes from sugarcane versus U.S. ethanol basically coming from corn. And the sugarcane process is more efficient, yields nine times the energy than what is used in the process to create it. There actually were some initiatives to produce sugarcane ethanol in the United States, but I don't believe those things actually became a reality. Uh, nevertheless, sugarcane grows best in tropical and subtropical environments where minimum annual rainfall is 24 inches. So the parts of Florida, Louisiana, Texas, and Hawaii have historically supported sugarcane production. Brazil has been successfully growing the crop in commercial quantities since the year 1550. The Brazilian ethanol industry has a relatively long history as well, with ethanol being produced in the late 1920s all through the World War II period. In actuality, during the war, the Brazilian government mandated that all gasoline be 50% blended with ethanol due to global oil shortages. Afterwards, ethanol blends were really only rarely used as post-war ushered in a wave of cheap oil that left the U.S. excuse me, the use of ethanol only advantaged during times of sugar surplus. And that's how the environment was until about the mid-1970s. Governmental initiatives arose to once again use considerable volumes of ethanol, largely because of the gasoline shortages experienced during the oil crisis. Now, I'm not going to go through all the changes of the Brazilian ethanol program that occurred over the last 45 to 46 years. Let's just say that the road led us to where we are today with an ethanol blend requirement of 27%. So what does that look like in the country? Well, this could be expected from mandates, taxation, and availability that comes with an industry. Brazil's car park reflects what you'd expect. All the non-diesel vehicles able to run off the 27% blend, and 60% of the fleet with the ability to run E100, so 100% ethanol, and the price is advantageous. We've seen this with the U.S. car park being mostly gasoline vehicles, and the EU fleet moving from mostly diesels, which resulting from Europe's dieselization period, uh, to a larger share now being gasoline, well, sold, anyway, which started moving that way after the VW uh, diesel scandal. Anyway, the implications. Well, that gets a bit more difficult. Brazil on its face is using its resource to provide optionality in its transportation fuels offering. It's not been without significant issue. First, it's a high percentage mandate adds a level of complication to the fuels equation than what we have in the U.S. You've introduced a complete other market that has its own flexibility and variable issues, 
and that's played a part in multiple mandate changes and trade flow, adjust, trade flow adjustments in the last few years. Sugarcane crop yields have a pretty massive swing year to year, and sugarcane is very susceptible to weather conditions. Add in that the sugar market influences whether crops are devoted to ethanol or sugar production based on sugar prices. This, of course, means that the ethanol market in Brazil can be volatile. Given Brazil's demand for biofuels, it has actually had to import ethanol for several periods of the last few years. Market issues aside, sugarcane fields tend to threaten biodiversity, not just in the areas where they exist, but in the rainforest that surrounds the fields. And never mind the expansion further into those natural areas. All right. I'm running out of time here, but aside from covering South America for these podcasts, I'm the person for middle distillates analysis for all the Americas. And just like basically everywhere else, Brazilian diesel is subject to renewable standards as well. This month, the country's biodiesel mandate rose to 13%, 80% soybean oil and 20% from animal fats or other vegetable oils, and will increase 1% every year until 2028 when it reaches 20%. Last year, Petrobras started some demonstration plants to make renewable diesel. What you don't know, the difference is a drop-in fuel is chemically identical to traditional petroleum diesel. With the shakeups at Petrobras, issues with diesel pricing, trucker strikes, or threat thereof, we'll have to see how Petrobras's renewable diesel program plays out. All right, that's all for me. Jim, take us away. So as we have heard, the energy mix of the various countries is really the song of the utilization of the country's natural resources. Even with world change, this truth has to hold. The alternative is just too destructive to consider. Since we had such an overwhelmingly positive support for our last podcast, next time, Corey and I will resurrect the game show format for some more fun and oil-related humor. All right. Thanks, Jim. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you hear on this podcast, then you'll want to tune in to Refinitiv's new podcast, Gently Down the Stream, that I'll be hosting with a couple of other experts from our Houston Oils team. It's going to be a bit of a buffet, NGLs, pet chems, ethanol, and a lot of you know, energy transition topics. For the first episode, I'll dive into the hydrogen conversation. Until next time, thanks for listening.